I think if I had one phrase to encapsulate all of my concerns and fears about Athens, Georgia, it's that we are not in a poverty of resources in terms of economic resources. We're in a poverty of hope. This is Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life. I'm your host, Frank Granger, Minister of Christian Community. Our series, Meet Your Community, aims to deepen our awareness of community needs and meet some of the people and organizations working daily to meet those needs. Hopefully, we can begin to envision ways to use our skills and resources, personally and collectively, to help in meeting those needs. Previous episodes have featured community organizations that provide direct services to meet some of the critical needs of our community. This episode is slightly different. Our focus today is on an ongoing project that provides community organizations and institutions with meaningful data that will lead to more informed decision-making, improvements in service delivery, and greater quality of life for our citizens. The Athens Wellbeing Project, WBP, serves to assist our community leaders and institutions by providing a comprehensive snapshot of our community's unique needs and assets in athens Clark County. Today, we meet Grace Bagwell-Adams, principal investigator of this valuable project. Grace Bagwell-Adams, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to introduce you and your work to First Baptist. You're the principal investigator of the Athens Wellbeing Project. Boy, that sounds formal. <laughs> it does. It's fancy. <laughs> it's fancy. I love titles. They're so fancy. But I think your work's not only fascinating, I think it's really important for our community. Thank you. The first thing, though, that I want to do, mm-hmm. rather than talk about your work, is talk just a little bit about you. Okay. And I believe there are a few little connections that you have here with some people in our church. Absolutely. So yes. tell us a little bit about the Grace Bagwell Adams story. Yeah. Um, well, you can hear immediately when I start talking, I'm clearly from the South. <laughs> I am from a really small, what used to be a farming community, Bowling Springs, uh, South Carolina. It's in Spartanburg County. Oh, yeah. I Only know about two hours up the road, but it, when I say yes. that, here in Athens, people act like it's another country. Um <laughs> I'm from Greenville, South Carolina, oh, so, so I, know that. You know, I know so that. I you know that area. Greenville's beautiful. And I, when I first meet folks as an adult, especially when I'm talking about the work that I do, I like to share a little bit about my context and my story, so I'm glad you asked. So not only am I from Spartanburg County, but I'm the first person in my direct family line in over 250 years to leave the county, okay? Really? Yes, and it probably goes back farther than that, Frank, but I... You know, they were poor farmers, so there's not a whole lot of records past that. But, um, I mean, eventually we went from farming into textiles. Spartanburg County was the textile mill capital of the world. So both sides of my family um, were in agriculture and then transitioned into working for textile mills. My mom was the first person to go to college. So I was not a first-gen college student. She went to Converse College, which is a small women's – it was a small women's liberal arts school. Now it's actually gone co-ed during covid But she went to Converse, and I grew up in Spartanburg with my parents, a loving, wonderful Christian family who deeply believed in social justice. Mm. And, you know, in addition to being from Spartanburg and having that long family history there, I mean, you know, we were not a wealthy family by any means. I would say that, you know, my mom was a public school teacher, and my dad was an engineer for many years. But I would say that I definitely have humble but deep roots um, in that community. And my parents taught me from the very beginning how important it was to love your family, be loyal to your family, to your faith, and to the community that you live in. And so that's, even though I've left Spartanburg and I'm here in Athens now, that's definitely, those are the things that I took with me. I never dreamed I'd have an opportunity to have, you know, to be able to be a college professor or have a PhD or have any kind of title. Really, I didn't have any aspirations like that, I think that a long time ago, what I really wanted to do was dance and be in theater. That was really what I grew up kind of doing. And 
in a way, I still use all those skills, you know, even in the classroom now and in all the work that I do. But I think, long story short, uh, as, as most Southerners <laughs> say, <laughs> long story long, <laughs> I have a sweet, beautiful family and who have always been really good to me. And I am two hours away from, there, from them now down here in Athens, Georgia. It's so funny because my dad, when I took my job at UGA, as an academic, you know, when you go on the academic job market, you could end up really in Timbuktu. You could end up anywhere. I mean, there's a handful of jobs that open in the country every single year. And, yeah. you know, you you may end up kind of close and regionally to home. You may not. But I was really blessed to, to have the opportunity to stay at the University of Georgia, which is where I did my graduate work. And my dad said, well, I'm proud of you, baby, but I wish he could have just landed a little closer to home. I said, Daddy, I, <laughs> I have won the academic lottery. There's no clo- there is no closer to home, you know. This is as close as I can get. It's, you know, far enough but not too far. So it's just funny. I mean, that's, you know, my roots are still there, but I have now made Athens, Georgia my home with my husband, Clayton. We have two children here, Bonnie and, and Theodore, who we call Teddy. They are six and two, and we love Athens, and we consider ourselves uh, – citizens of Athens, Georgia, and that citizenship means a lot to us, and that's the lens through which I really approach all my work as a, as a citizen, as a wife, as a mom, as a, you know, a, a person of faith living in this community, and that's how I think about really everything that I do, and, you know, it comes with a conviction of to really just to whom much is given, much is expected, to whom much more is given, much more is expected, and I've been given a lot not necessarily in material wealth, but certainly in education and in skills that I never dreamed I'd have. So I just try to use those to the best of my ability. Well, on behalf of many, I will say we're glad you're here in Athens, Georgia. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. Yeah. You have a connection to one person in particular in our church. Yes, Emily. Um, yes, Emily Harbin. Yes, so wonderful. She So Athens is a small place. Georgia is a small place, really. At the end of the day, my husband... Uh, about 10 years ago, started working for a state agency called the Department of Early Care and Learning. And on a very small sort of community outreach team, he represented Athens, Georgia, still does, but his region's a lot bigger now. He represents 26 counties. But on his small team was Suzanne Harbin, Emily's beautiful mother. And she has just become a wonderful close family friend of ours. And through Suzanne was introduced, of course, to Emily. And it's just such a blessing to know her. And then I've gotten to know Elizabeth Marston as well, um, and her daughter, as they dance at our our studio. Um, I have a dance studio. The thing that kind of brings me joy on the side is being part owner of a dance studio here in Athens. So, yeah, lots of connections to folks here at the church, and really grateful for that. So you didn't completely give up on your dance and theater, did you? No, I never did. It's just something that just really fills my cup. And during COVID, I've, I've always danced since I was five years old. I remember standing in my grandmother's kitchen in Bowling Springs, and my mom really wanted to sign me up for dance class. Um, We didn't have the money at the time, but she told my grandmother, she said, Grace is going to love dance. I just really think she's going to love it. And my grandmother said, well, I'll pay for it. That's fine, you know. And so I started at five years old taking tap in jazz classes. And, you know, a lot of children who grew up, you know, in the 90s, especially girls, did a lot of, did a lot of tap jazz ballet, but it stuck with me, and I've danced my entire life, and teaching dance has been a job that's helped put me through school, and now as, you know, during COVID, I had the opportunity with two partners to open up our own studio, and so we've been able to do that, and it's been an incredible joy just to have that outlet, for sure. Wonderful. Wonderful. You mentioned going to graduate school here. Mm-hmm and where you're from, but let's talk about what's the path that led you to your role with the Athens Wellbeing Project and being on staff at UGA. So I came down to Athens in 2007 to do my master's in public administration, um, which is in the School of Public and International Affairs here at the University of Georgia. It's an incredibly good program. I actually came here with the intent of working on policy, public policy, but sort of in the international arena. I really wanted to go work for the federal government for the State Department, and that was that was really my goal. I thought I was going to be in Athens, Georgia for two years, get that degree, and go work for the federal government right off in the sunset. But just <laughs> like everybody else's journey in Athens that I've talked to, the people that really fall in love with this place, they come here, and they think they're going to be here a short time, and then it turns into much longer. Well, that was my story. So I met some mentors, and through my time in my master's program, 
uh, chief of, of whom was uh, Dr. Joe Horton, who at that time was on faculty in the School of Public International Affairs, but he also ran the Fanning Institute, which is a division of public service and outreach at Georgia. And he said, you know, I see you have a passion for policy, and I also see you have a passion for social justice. As I mentioned, that kind of came from how I was raised and my faith. And, and he said, you know, you can bring those two things together, and you don't have to go internationally for that. You can, you can stay right here. And he said, if you're really interested in working on poverty and social justice, you need to do the work right here in Athens, Georgia. And to that point, you know, my first two years in Athens, I had not really spent a lot of time, quite truthfully, out in the community. I mean, I had the typical student experience. I came. I went to football games. I enjoyed meals in downtown <laughs> Athens. I loved Athens, Georgia, for all the reasons people love Athens, Georgia, that, you know, visit for a weekend. But I not really invested, I think, as a citizen or even thought about Athens as a place that had a lot of need, you know, until Joe's mentorship. And so I started thinking about it, and he said, if you want to do your Ph.D., you can work with me at the Fanning Institute, and I'll fund you to do your Ph.D., and you'll work right here in Athens and and across the state on poverty issues and issues related to poverty. And in addition to having a lot of trust and faith in Joe and, and just being really inspired by his work, because he's one of the original conveners of what was then called Partnership for Prosperous Athens that became One Athens I also was graduating from my master's degree in the midst of the worst recession in 100 years. So I said, <laughs> I will take you up on it. I will stay for my PhD. Because, again, I never had – n- I've not been a person who had this life path kind of t- plotted out. And, you know, the the scripture that always comes to mind is a man's heart, you know, sets his plans, but the Lord directs his steps. And I, my heart had always just been in just loving, you know – my family, loving the place that I lived at that time, like whatever. I mean, it wasn't really about aspirational towards the future, but it, I have now seen, looking back, how the path has unfolded in a way that was that was meant to be to put me where I am here. So anyway, Joe gave me the opportunity to stay and get my PhD, and I did. And so for the next four years, I worked with him and researched and got all the skills around data analysis and policy analysis and all the things that any other student does who's getting a PhD in public policy but at the same time, had a really non-traditional experience because I was actually in communities in rural Georgia, particularly in southwest Georgia, and then also in the community in Athens, Georgia, working with nonprofits, working with community partners, doing data collection, doing data analysis, kind of learning on the ground what the what the heartbeat issues were for the communities that, that I was working in. And it just it just took my breath away. I mean, I, I knew poverty. There was such a thing as abject poverty in places around this you know, around the world, I never really thought about abject poverty, especially in terms of like people going without running water or electricity. I never really knew that kind of poverty was right here, you know, right here in Georgia. Now, that's not on average what poverty looks like here. But my point is, is that I gained a really deep understanding of the level of vulnerability that our communities face in the state of Georgia and in Athens in particular, during that time in my life. So that's what really kind of lit the fire in my belly to, to, try to marry that kind of work with the skills that I was getting in my PhD. I never really wanted to be an ivory tower academic. I'm an extrovert. I don't like sitting at a computer and not talking to people. I mean, I most of the times do my work here at coffee shops around town because I just like being around human <laughs> beings. So I'm very non-traditional <laughs> academic in that way. And so I had the opportunity to really learn by doing, not just by sort of studying when I was a PhD student, that was a very non-traditional way and at times a very difficult way to pursue a PhD. But I finished in 2013, and after all that time working and studying, what I ended up writing my dissertation about was policy for low-income families, but I really focused on hunger Mm. and food insecurity. I wrote my dissertation on the SNAP program, which is the food stamp program, and how that program mitigates vulnerability for really low-income families and so at the end of my PhD, there was one job in the university system of Georgia that was a good fit for me, and it was the College of Public Health here at UGA, and they were hiring someone who did food policy work. Okay. And so I said, well, that looks good, you know, and I applied at a lot of other jobs in the southeast. I wanted to stay relatively close to my family, so I did, you know, put it just to that region, but... I um, applied for the job at UGA in the College of Public Health and got it. And 
basically the pathway from there to the Athens Wellbeing Project was a pretty short one after that because by then I had been in Athens, Georgia for six years and I had spent four of those years doing this kind of community-engaged research and knew that if I were going to be a successful academic, not in the way that the academy defines success, but in the way that I define success, that I was going to have to find a way to leverage my skills out into the community directly. And so I started pretty immediately continuing partnerships with nonprofits and community organizations. And that's really how the Athens Wellbeing Project was born out of a need for our community to have a deeper understanding of really what was going on from a statistical standpoint. You know, I mean, you can you can go have a million conversations with people and and spend hours and hours and hours and years of your life trying to figure out what's going on and those those kinds of deep dives are called qualitative data and those are important. But I really wanted to be able to from a population standpoint in Athens help our community gather the kind of information we needed to inform policy, to inform service delivery, to f- inform philanthropy, to inform the faith community. Like, what what is actually happening on the ground, above and beyond the data we already have? I mean, the census, yeah, the census data will tell us we're one of the poorest c- communities in the country. In okay? the country, yes. Yeah. And that's true, fine. But that just scratches the surface. That doesn't really tell us that, to me, that is not actionable. You know, it is not actionable for us to look at our census quick facts and say, oh, okay, well, you know, we've got 50,000 households and everybody's really poor and da da, da. I mean, that's, that only gets us so far. So we need to go deeper than that. And I feel like my training and the mentorship I received set me up to work with community partners with integrity and fidelity, which I think is the key to this kind of work, by the way, in a way that created the space for Athens Wellbeing Project to be born. Communities and other organizations, they survey Mm -hmm. uh, often. Mm -hmm. But as we've talked before, the Athens Wellbeing Project is not just your typical survey. Right. Describe how it's really distinct and different and what it brings to a community. Yeah, so you bring a great point. Every community in this country is collecting data, okay? And... A lot, of, a lot of these organizations and institutions, whether it's your school district, your hospital systems, your local government, your police department, they're actually legally required to collect information pretty much on an annual basis and report those data back to state and federal agencies because of funding they receive or because of other legal responsibilities. So that's happening across the country. But what I observed is that a lot of times these organizations are working by themselves. They're working independently. They're not talking to one another. And that is problematic because we all create and live in our silos. But the truth is, is that if you really care about our community prospering as a whole, then we've got to have information and be talking to one another across issue areas. So it's not enough for the school district to collect data on education and just understand what's going on for education or for the hospitals to collect data on insurance and health and healthcare access or for the police department to collect data on safety. The truth is, is that for a person to feel safe, they also need access to healthcare. For a person to be healthy, they need to have access to insurance, yes, but also a good paying job and education, and they also need to feel safe. So you start to see all these ties between these issue areas in terms of what it means for a community to be healthy or well. And so what we're doing with Athens Wellbeing Project is the joke was, like, what do we need to do? I mean, everybody's already collecting data. How are we going to solve the problem with one more survey? Well, (laughs) (laughs) yes, there's irony here, I realize. But basically in 2015, all these community partners, some of which I've already named, looked around and said, hey, we're doing this work independently. We're all collecting data independently. We're not doing it together. We're not talking to one another. We're not learning from one another. And that's a problem, right? And so to the credit of our our public institutions in this community, they all came together and said, let's invest in a project together that allows us to come together every two to three years and say, what what data are we missing? What information do we not know? And then basically have a survey that allows us at the household level to collect the information that will fill in those gaps in our knowledge and then share that information with one another so that we can make better informed decisions. So that's how Athens Wellbeing Project was born. And what, what we do differently is we do work with all these organizations. So our partners that invest, chief among them is the Athens Area Community Foundation. That's our champion of the Athens Wellbeing Project. That's where Athens Wellbeing Project is kind of held. So the Community Foundation 
herds the cats, and the cats are the school district, the hospital, both hospital systems, the local government, the police department, United Way of Northeast Georgia, the University of Georgia, the Athens Housing Authority, and Vision Athens, and we're excited to welcome on also Advantage Behavioral Health in our next round. So all of those folks come together, and that is, I think, the first novel thing that I'll say about the work that, that we do at Athens Wellbeing Project is we're not doing this work in isolation. We are not doing this work with a political motivation. We are not doing this work to simply collect information and hold it and not share it with anyone else. It's, it really is, for the first time, creating a space for all of the institutions who collect data anyway to come together to do it with greater integrity and, quite frankly, research rigor. That's what I bring to the table with with my research team, so that we have, for the first time, I believe, in this community since 2015 when we started this work, an actual snapshot of what's going on in many different facets of life rather than just looking at one facet. So again, what are we doing? Bringing these people to the table, sharing information, and we're creating what I call a public good, which is something that we can share not just with one another, not just for the people who pay for the project and make the project happen, but with the public. I mean, we have a website where we've made all of our reports publicly available. We have a social mapping atlas. People can go on and, and look at a lot of these indicators, especially from the census down at the neighborhood level. So what's different about AWP is the rigor, the partnership, the cross-sector collaboration, and honestly, the transparency. I think all of those things kind of make this project unique. And this is a longitudinal study. Yes, thank so you. So distinguish that yeah. from other types. Yeah, so it's not a one and done. I mean, in other words, the project kind of started in 2015. We started collecting data for the first time in 2016. So we went out and surveyed the community that year. So if we were doing just a snapshot or a one and done, we would have gone out and collected data in 2016 and said, okay, great, we know everything to know about Athens. But that's ridiculous, right? I mean... The Athens of 2016 is not the Athens of 2023. Mm-hmm. So the intent was always to build something that would be sustained over time, okay? So we've now gone out into the what I call the field, which is in Athens, Georgia, to collect data. We've gone into the field three times, 2016, 2018, 2019, and then 2022. And so we have three points in time of data that actually is a representative set of households of this community. So what you should know is that we don't just – put a survey up on our website and say answer this and whoever comes to the website answers the survey we actually do some really strategic data collection Um, the research term is sampling okay we sample a representative set of households in athens clark county so we have data across time and also we take great care to collect information from groups of folks who have historically been completely left out of data collection. And so that includes, and let me be clear, that's not necessarily because people haven't wanted to get data of those people or they haven't tried. It's just vulnerable populations are, you know, for good reason, very difficult to collect data with. And that includes homeless individuals, individuals who are transitional in their housing. So maybe they're staying with a relative or, you know, in an extended stay motel. You know, we, we also have special efforts for Older adults, especially those who are homebound or in assisted living facilities. We have special efforts for our public housing residents, and we have special efforts for our Latino families in this community. Athens Clark County is about 11% Latino. So what is special about the longitudinal nature of the project is it allows us over time to see what's happening in Athens. What is happening to the population? How is it shifting? What, how are the needs changing? And we do this for a representative set of households and also do really intentional work to get data from those special populations. That's extensive. It is. It's a lot of work. I wanted to quit many times. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a lot this of work. Is, this is now becoming truth or consequences. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm always truthful about it. You know, it's it's a blessing, but it's also been a lot. I mean, it's been a steep learning curve for me. I've had to I learn a lot about doing this kind of work it's not it's not traditionally the work of the academy let me put it that way and over time people have become much more supportive both at UGA and in the community of me and the Athens Wellbeing Project but I think it goes back Frank to what I said at the very beginning and that I really had to prove to the community that I'm doing this from a place of citizenship not from a place of personal agenda or politics or any of that other junk yeah you mentioned 
learning some things mm-hmm. through this process. I think we're all susceptible to some extent with forming our assumptions mm-hmm. about what needs are in the community mm-hmm. and who the people are who have those needs. Mm-hmm. When we really encounter reality and get up close and personal with people and data, mm-hmm. then we have to rethink our assumptions mm-hmm. often. Um, usually it's enlightening and helpful. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you have a story or two of some people who you've observed Mm -hmm. who've had those kind of epiphanies? Yeah, I I do think so. I think, first of all, I can always sense, you know, a person's orientation as to whether they're going to be open-minded to learning something or not. So I have been really pleasantly surprised quite honestly at the number of people when presented with not just what Athens will be in project is and what we're doing but the findings of the project who have had an open mind about perhaps shifting the way they think about Athens Georgia you know as a function of that work and I've seen that time and time and time again that always is really humbling you know, because most of the folks that I'm presenting to and talking to about these projects also live in Athens, Georgia. You know, it's a yeah. hyper-local project, right? So it's not like I'm taking a road show out and telling people in Macon or Dalton or Rome or wherever, like, about what's happening in Athens. No, I'm, I'm talking to people who live and work right here. And so that can be challenging. But overall, I have felt that people have been really open. I'm trying to think about a specific example that would resonate you know, one of the things that I I get to do with this work, I, I've, I've been invited multiple times to present to the Lead Athens class. Yeah. Which is the initiative, you know, run through the chamber. And there's it's an incredible group of people every single year that, that come through there, really diverse in terms of what work they do, what sectors of the community they represent, all that stuff. And every time I present to them, I... I notice, I I can feel in the room a sea change in how they are perceiving kind of what Athens is, right? But this past month, actually at the end of July, I had the opportunity to present to the new Lead Athens class. And I really remember in that room in particular and in that presentation you know, what we did was we started out with, you know, I asked the audience, you know, what what are your perceptions about Athens, Georgia? And I asked I ask them this, this thing. I said, well, tell me the peach in the pit. What's the peach? What's the best <laughs> thing about Athens, Georgia that you love? What's the pit that you know is like a big challenge? And the peach, you know, is easy to come by. Everybody thinks about, you know, the food and the music and the, you know, beautiful outdoor um, activities that you can do. I mean, all the different things. I mean, Georgia Bulldogs. I mean, think about, you know, there's a million things that make Athens, Georgia awesome and special. And then the pit, you can imagine, like, immediately people are like, poverty. You know, I, I hear the word over and over again, poverty, poverty, you know, need. Um, and all of their responses were true, but the alternate reality that I usually present, or actually, let me say that differently, when I have this discussion and I allow people to kind of tell me up front what their stereotypes, what their ideas are about Athens, Georgia, peach in the pit, the good thing yeah. and the tough thing, I hear the same things over and over again. And then what I do is I say, well, the reality is that it's a both and, right? That that there are beautiful things, and to borrow a phrase from my dear friend Matt Stevens over at Get Comfortable and Creature Comforts, there's citizenship requires for us to embrace both the beautiful and the broken, mm. Right. And I have I really learned a lot from that, and I really have held that close to me as I think about my work and my life in Athens. Yes, we can enjoy the beautiful, but you also have to understand and then, and then invest in lifting up the broken, right? And so in this particular class and in this particular presentation when I was presenting on Athens, Georgia, what I talk about is there's a lot of great, there's a lot of broken, but the truth is the real thing that's harming us as a community is that we don't have a middle there's no there's a missing middle there's a missing middle class so we have a lot of wealth we have a lot of really highly educated people we have a lot of incredibly beautiful assets and resources and we have a lot of brokenness and need and that comes with disease and that comes with 
evictions and that comes with not finishing high school, you know. And so in that particular group, I think that I saw and realized how important that storytelling is to tee people up and say it can be true that all of the at the same time we have all of this beautiful and all of this brokenness. But the only path forward is to realize that we have a complete missing middle. And seeing a room shift when you take them through that and show them the data that supports that uh, hypothesis or that, that, that truth really is really powerful. And, and seeing people kind of shift the way they think about Athens away from just, oh, it's just a place of need or it's just a place for a Saturday football game. No, it's, it's both. It's both. That's a shift you can not only see, but I bet you feel that mm-hmm. in the room too. Hundred percent, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it's like the scales fall away, you know, from yeah. your eyes. I mean, it's it's uh, people don't like existing in in a duality. You know, you you want it to be one way or the other, mm-hmm. and that, I think that's human nature. But we live in a, a tale of two cities. Like we literally live in a Charles Dickens novel in this community. I mean, it is a tale of two cities. And I think that's really important to understand. One other thing that I want to ask is this. I first wanted to talk about what this data has given you as Mm -hmm. some of the most important needs in the community. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I'm hearing now is it's really those needs are incredibly important Mm -hmm. and for us to work at meeting those. But I'm hearing that one of the most significant things your findings present us is this gap Mm -hmm. and what's missing. Mm -hmm. Um, That was not something I expected to hear Mm -hmm. either, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. In addition to the gap, what are a couple, two or three of those overriding needs that you see going on from this longitudinal study? I think if I had one phrase to encapsulate all of my concerns and fears about Athens, Georgia, it's that we are not in a poverty of resources in terms of economic resources. We're in a poverty of hope. I believe we're in a poverty of hope. I believe this community is chronically ill when it comes to the way that we view ourselves. And it is most prescient and and most uh, palpable, I suppose, in the most vulnerable, right? You know, for folks who were born into poverty here, the idea that they would ever be able to live in a way differently than that is often not even something that's ever in their consciousness, something that's not ever thought about, right? That's what I mean by poverty of hope. I mean, this idea that that this is just the way things are and it's not going to get any better, that kind of thing. And it's not just about socioeconomics. I think it's about social isolation. And that's what I want to say is I think at this point in 2023, I think the number one public health emergency that we have in Athens, Georgia, is around this idea of a poverty of hope, but it's really about isolation, grief. You know, we we collected data pre and post-COVID. COVID's changed everything. I don't think COVID necessarily presented any new problems. I think COVID pulled the curtain back. I think of that scene in The Wizard of Oz where they find out the wizard is, you know, just a bumbling human being behind a a black velvet curtain. And I think of our problems post-COVID that way, that it's it's just pulled the curtain back on what was actually there all along. But, you know, 50% of people that we, of households in Athens, Georgia, lost a loved one in the last two to three years. When we collect 50%. 50%, so half of all households and uh, were affected by grief. And this is a really important lesson because we all followed like the COVID case count or the number of people who died from COVID. But, but loss doesn't necessarily follow county lines, right? Right. And loss doesn't just affect one person. When one person dies, an entire community can be affected, right? 
So what we asked was, have you lost a loved one in the last uh, one to two years? We asked that question in 2022. So now it's 2023, so it's like two to three years. But what we found is half of all households had lost a loved one. And of those households, 40% of those losses were due to COVID, okay? So I just use this this one microcosmic example from our data. We have hundreds of variables, too much data. The survey's too long, but... If you ever, that being said, if you ever get asked to take it, please take the survey. It's incredibly important. But <laughs> we, we asked about grief. We asked about loss. And it blew me away. I mean, I wept when I, when I got that descriptive statistic from the data, when I calculated that the first time. I kept checking it. I rechecked it. I rechecked it. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that half of all people had lost a loved one. Mm. And, and, and that blew me away. And, and I... Definitely. And one of those people, I mean, I lost several loved ones during the pandemic. One of whom was a dear, beautiful friend who died of breast cancer mm. and who at the time during in COVID 2021, sort of, I had my, in the pre-vaccine period, I had my second child, my son. And so I was pregnant and postpartum for much of, of COVID, which was brutal in and of itself. But when I lost my dear friend to breast cancer, I wasn't even able to go to her funeral. So I just think about my own individual example. But I, I've thought a lot about how not only did so many people lose someone they loved, they weren't able to do the things they normally would do to close the door on that loss, like gather together and pray together or eat together or just just be together, physically together, to mark that momentous thing that happened to them you know and that's only one kind of grief there are many other kinds of grief you know but I have observed tremendous loss in these data and there aren't a lot of data sources in the United States that actually collect information on grief like this but I think that's one of the big needs right now is that we we need radical change in our ability and willingness to connect with one another since this pandemic has ended. And I see the social isolation and the grief pop up in other ways in the data too. I mean, people pre-pandemic, very regular. we ask on the survey, do you gather with friends or colleagues or family outside of work? Okay, and if you do, how frequently do you do so? So pre-pandemic, it wasn't uncommon for people to do that several times a week or at least weekly. But post-pandemic, I mean, in 2022, people were saying 25% of people said that it was like monthly they would see people outside and so that really resonated with me too because it's not just about like the direct loss of a loved one it's also people are working and they're working more jobs and longer hours to make ends meet and then they're exhausted and they're just at home you know and trying to recuperate um and so I think that people are just very isolated and this is of course tied into one of the other needs that is very predominant and that I think is our biggest healthcare need and that's mental health, behavioral health. So I see that play out. So it's, it's all these threads I see connected, right? It's all what I would encapsulate again, in the phrase of poverty of hope. Part of it is about grief and loss. Part of it is about never being able to have the space and the time to grieve. Part of it is about the social isolation that has come from uh, not just the pandemic, but economic hardship and what, what that means. I think part of it is even a falling away from faith communities, mm-hmm. getting out of the, you know, of the routine of, of being together uh, in a faith community and worshiping together. So many things, you know, but I see it all. I see the effects of all of those, that, that what I would call root problems, show up in our mental health outcomes. And I'm not saying that the only cause of depression, anxiety, or any of these other mental health things that we care about. I don't, I'm not saying it's always grief or loss. It's, I'm not trying to oversimplify but what I am saying is I see traces of this poverty of hope throughout the data in every place I look. So one in three households deals uh, with depression. One in uh, three households deals with anxiety. And that's just the people who will admit to it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so exactly. I think those are, the, those are the really big needs. I mean, we talk a lot about income and the cost of living and workforce development and education. And I can give you stats on that, and we can talk about that. And those are big needs. But I don't think we can really address any of that until we get to overcoming some of the worst effects of this isolation and loss. You really tap into what is a few of the most deep assets and 
characteristics of what a congregation, a church, mm-hmm. seeks to promote. Mm-hmm. And those are hope. Mm-hmm. That's at the foundation mm-hmm. uh, of our asset and what we proclaim, as well as strength of community. Mm-hmm. Because being together is essentially what church is. And those are some deep assets that we hold as a congregation. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Makes me think that there are things we should be bringing to the table mm-hmm. to help work with these needs mm-hmm. in the community that you articulate. Mm-hmm. It's not just that we're broken, we're fractured. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's such a good point. And I think that this whole idea of feeling hopeless and feeling alone is that so many people and I can speak to Athens because we're here to talk about but I think I think in general this is this is a systemic societal issue but they just don't feel like they belong they don't feel welcome and I think that sense of belonging and hospitality quite frankly it's like is one of the great things that a congregation can give to you just have to get over that initial barrier of getting people to, to trust you enough to even to, you know, to open their door figuratively and, and literally, I think. But we have a lot of distrust to overcome, I think, as a community of one another. And that's a big piece of this puzzle, too. You know, the fracturing is is a symptom of a lot of the other aspects of life and American life right now, the political polarization, for example, you know, we're as a society are more polarized than we've ever been. Yeah. And I think that there is this unspoken belief that if, if you think different than me or you believe different than me, then we can't break bread together. We cannot have conversation even, you know, I also have seen, and I think a lot about the role of social media in this fracturing and in this poverty of hope. And what I often tell my students in my classroom is thinking about something or scrolling, you know, and reading about something or passively even sort of passive engagement on social media is not the same thing as actually engaging and doing something. Yeah. And so part of the fracturing and the brokenness, I think, is to put the phone down, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and get back to, you know, building like true deep relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. One of your comments you made a few minutes ago reminded me of a song that we sing sometimes. One of the lines from the song is God welcomes all Mm -hmm. strangers and friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes we sing that to proclaim it. Sometimes we sing it to remind ourselves. To remind ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We really do. Mm-hmm. So all this data mm-hmm. that you have, how might a church like First Baptist both access it and do something with it? I love that question. So despite the fact that I just spoke poorly of social media, we are on social media, so you can follow <laughs> us on Facebook. <laughs> I get the irony in this. We'll uh, put some links in Totally, the, yes, in the please, notes. please, please, please. So, so. So the first and foremost, um, we have an incredible website, and I welcome you to go there. It's AthensWellBeingProject.org. On that website, I think the best place to start, we've got a 10-minute impact video where you can really look at what we've been doing and why and hear from the partners that we've worked with directly. It's pretty powerful. I've seen that. Thank you. That was incredible work from Matt Hanner, a local video producer from Motion House Media who did that incredible work and that impact video is there. I encourage you to go watch it and to share it with anyone in Athens, anyone who you think could benefit from learning about the project. There's also reports out the wazoo. You can, if you are a data nerd and you want to go deep diving into this data, (laughs) you can do that. We have reports from all three iterations of AWP. So we have five domains or issue areas across which we organize our efforts for Athens Wellbeing Project. That includes health, housing, education, community safety, and civic vitality. And uh, civic vitality, by the way, includes things like social capital, engagement in a faith community, because um, we understand how important that is. And so 
you can read our reports in those domain areas, but we also, if you don't want to read a full report, we have little one-page snapshots of different issue areas that have really popped up in the data as being important areas. Everything from things like predatory lending, like we know whether a family's taken out a, a payday loan in the last 90 days. Um, by the way, one in 10 families have done that in the last 90 days to mental behavioral health, to dental health, to housing and eviction. So lots of different one-pagers you can check out. And then finally, we have our social mapping atlas. So you can actually go and look at data down at the neighborhood level if you're interested in different indicators. So that's the first, kind of the first pass is go look at our website, watch the video, look at the reports. You can engage with us on social media. We have an Instagram account, Facebook account, Athens Wellbeing Project. And also, I'm always happy to chat, to engage, to present, whatever. If you have a community group, if you have any folks that you think would benefit from learning about this, either me or someone from our team can come and talk about Athens Wellbeing Project. And then finally, last and most importantly, we are going to be collecting data again next year in 2024. And the way that we do that is if you get selected to participate, if you win the lottery, <laughs> you will get a postcard in the mail and you will be asked to take the survey. And um, we usually do a little treat like a, a Jittery Joe's coffee or something in exchange for well, taking the survey. Yes, absolutely. But please, if you get asked to take the survey, please take it because your data matter and your household data ends up being a story part of the story that is Athens, Georgia, that we are telling in this project. So please, please, please take the survey and tell your friends about the project. I'm assuming that there is respect of privacy and all that with yeah, the absolutely. survey. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually we don't collect um, any names with the survey. So we have a sample, we have a list of all addresses in Athens, Clark County, and then we do a random selection of those addresses. About 17% of households are selected And then we send the postcard to the resident of that address. And so we collect no names and then we de-identify and we strip away any potentially identifying information like address from the data. We don't share any of that publicly. We don't report any individual level information ever. And all of this is approved by our um, ethics review board, our institutional review board at the University of Georgia. So they have approved um, the project. And so we take that really seriously because we understand how important people's privacy is. Very good. Very good. Another question I have is this. When people talk about the disparity Mm -hmm. of economics in this community, I will sometimes hear this little debate pop up. Is it the student debate? Is it, does it include the students in the data? Does it (laughs) skew it or does it not? I'll tell you. I know the answer to that question. Please I'll tell you. So tell I, I, I hope this makes the cut. So I've been in, Georgia, in Athens, Georgia, as I said, since 2007. If I had a dollar for every time somebody has said to me that our poverty problem in Athens, Georgia, is really the students being included in the data, I could take you and I, Frank, to a really nice dinner at the National. Okay? Ooh. That's how many times, yeah, we could go eat. and We might even be able to have enough money left over to go to CNA. Okay? Well, I've had a <laughs> lot of people <laughs> say that to me over the years. I'm so sick of that. So I said, so when we built Athens Wellbeing Project, we built it so that we could actually drill down into the data and test that hypothesis. And the way that we did that is we make sure we have a really good representative sample of households, but we ask, are you enrolled in college? And if you're enrolled in college, are you enrolled at the University of Georgia? So inevitably, 11 to 13% of my sample in any given year are college students, okay? Okay. Um, and most of whom are at the University of Georgia. So I have calculated every statistic in Athens Wellbeing Project data with and without those college students in the data. And so I can say with absolute confidence that the disparity that we observe in Athens, Georgia, that the poverty that we observe in Athens, Georgia, is not created by students from the University of Georgia or students from any higher ed institution. In actuality, we actually, our outcomes, if anything, look better because of the students, okay? Because it's not just about income, right? When I start looking at things like eviction, when I start looking at things like health insurance status, access to the doctor, most of these college students have a lot more stability in their housing. They they are actually insured. They have health insurance. So a lot of these other outcomes that we associate with, with poverty or well-being, like poverty or lack of well-being, they actually look a lot better for college students than they do for families who are not in college or living in poverty. So we've actually been able to completely dispel what I would call one of the greatest misconceptions about Athens, Georgia, 
and that is that our poverty problem is not just because we've got 40,000 students who are making little to no income. In fact, most of the students are much better off than our low-income families who are not in school. I feel like that when that question and debate pops up, mm-hmm. it's really about diverting us from talking about the Oh, it's a distraction. And it is a distraction. It is a, yeah. it is a feeble attempt to basically take responsibility and put it somewhere else. And it is not serving us. It is yeah. not serving us as a community. It's really hampering us. It's really handicapping us in a really significant way. Well, it's definitely making the cut. Perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, we've talked a lot about some mm-hmm. very serious things. We have. Important things in this community. I do want to say once again, I'm very thankful for your work and what you bring to the community and how you call us to be better. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So let's have a little fun. I have a few lightning round questions. I'm ready. Let's Are go. you ready? Yeah. Okay. Mountains or beach? Oh, Lord. Well, I think of those as, uh, you know, like making my vacation choice. I grew up in the mountains, which I love with all my heart, but I got to go to the beach. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to barbecue, pork or brisket? Oh, my goodness. That's a good one. My husband has recently converted me to brisket, so I'd say brisket. Ooh. Yeah. From South Carolina, even. I know, a recent change. Pepsi or Coke? Oh, Coke. Oh, my word. (laughs) Not even a question. (laughs) Backyard party or black tie gala? Oh, black tie gala. I love to dress up. (laughs) What is the most unusual job you've ever had? Unusual? Oh, I love this question. Unusual job. Well got to think about this, Frank. I know it's supposed to be lightning around. I've had a lot of different jobs. When I was 15, I'll tell you about my first job. When I was 15 in Bowling Springs, South Carolina, I worked at a dry cleaners. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily call it unusual, but it was unpleasant because <laughs> I worked at the front taking in clothes in the heat of the South Carolina summer with no air condition. Uh-huh. And in a, here's the thing about dry cleaners. In addition to not having an air conditioner because it's just not efficient, you can't you can't cool down that place. The machines themselves are generating intense amounts of heat. So, I have worked in a very unpleasant <laughs> situation before. And if there's anything that helped fuel me to persist to get my PhD, it was the thought of never having to do that kind of work again. Mm-hmm. That's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us today and for your time. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, Thank Grace. You. Thank you so much. The Athens Wellbeing Project website is AthensWellbeingProject.org. There's a link to the site in the show notes, along with links for Instagram and Facebook. Please share this podcast with others in your organization who are active in the work of improving the lives of everyone in our community. Join us next week when the tables turn and Aaron Barger interviews Frank Granger. This is Open to Explore, the FBC Athens podcast featuring conversations at the intersection of faith and life.